I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the latest things that are happening in Ukraine, and we're speaking on Monday morning, 1135 Eastern Time, we have with us Andrew Lawson, who is a fellow in the CSIS Europe program and until recently lived in Ukraine, where he was working for the OSCE. Andrew, welcome to Truth of the Matter. I got to ask you, you know, people like Bob Gates, former Secretary of Defense, people like Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, Leon Panetta, also former Secretary of Defense, have said over the weekend that, you know, they think that Putin has miscalculated here on a variety of things, ranging from the fact that he he's not going to be, even if he can conquer Ukraine, he can't hold it, and to things like, you know, how Putin is really isolating himself from the world. His only friends left are going to be Iran, Syria, North Korea, and he'll be deeply beholden to China. What's the situation as you see it? Well, I think you're absolutely correct. What we know is that when Putin launched this invasion last week, he said he was doing so with the intention of denazifying and demilitarizing Ukraine. And what that means is looking for regime change. He wants to get rid of the Zelensky government. And he's expecting that the Ukrainian army will either lay down their arms or uh, somehow be compelled to, to give up the fight. And it's clear from the first couple of days of this war that that's simply not going to happen. So I think it's absolutely correct to say that Putin has miscalculated here. You know, for for now, we're seeing Russian forces uh, really hamstrung, unable to achieve their military objectives. This will probably force a change in strategy that will turn the conflict into, into quite a bloody one with a significant toll. And will make it a lot harder for Putin to present himself as a liberator or a defender of Russian and Slavic peoples. Moreover, if we think about the, the Western response to this, as the Ukrainians are putting up you know, one heck of a fight, going into this uh, you know, about a week ago, I think it, uh, it seemed that Europe was really not on the same page with the United States, not on the same page with each other. Germany was still sending in helmets and, and you know, non-lethal assistance. And as soon as this invasion was launched, we saw a real sea change in the European approach and, and levels of unity from, from the EU itself that we've, we've just never seen before, with the EU now looking to provide arms to Ukraine. This is a major change and, uh, and certainly something that I think Putin did not expect. Are his objectives, Putin's objectives that he has stated achievable? Or, you know, it really sounds like this is a gross miscalculation on his part, given, you know, the, the events of the last couple of days and, and week. I think one of the reasons why you had so many people and so many analysts thinking that this war would not be possible is because the objectives that Putin has stated that he was hinting at even before were so far-fetched that it would be impossible to achieve. You know, there's, there's plenty of us who, before this, uh, this war started, you know, saw the U.S. intelligence indicating that this seemed to be what Putin wanted to do. And we're thinking, well, you know, maybe not. Maybe, maybe what he really wants is something short of a, of, you know, a takeover and a full-scale invasion, maybe to, to raise the stakes, to you know, launch a limited conflict and force Ukraine to make concessions. So certainly the logic is, uh, is not really there. What Putin wants to achieve is, is you know, something that the Ukrainians will never give him. And so now he's finding himself bogged down, not having been able to, to achieve the, the quick victory that I think he was looking for. That's going to force a change in approach. Absolutely. 
And in Russia, you know, we've seen protests in Russia that certainly look pretty intense, thousands of people getting arrested on a daily basis. What's going to start happening, you know, when these poor kids who are fighting this war start coming home in body bags in, in Russia? Like, do you foresee the people of Russia really continuing to rise up? That's a great question. It is really remarkable to see how uh, you know, so many people in Russia are braving the threat of arrest to sustain a series of anti-war protests. We've also seen that the Russian government is is ramping up their response, making it so that these squares in central in, in the center of Russian cities are surrounded by fences, basically putting in obstacles so that people can't protest, and certainly making examples out of those who do. But so far, if I'm not mistaken, we have two or three thousand people who've already been arrested for these protests. They're taking place in cities all over Russia. You know, I'm not entirely sure if they're going it's going to be sustained in the long run to have the protests in, in this in the way that we've seen them so far, where they are, you know, large groupings of people appearing in the center cities. This may eventually turn into a series of much smaller protests, maybe even just individual protests where brave people still will hold up signs protesting the war or, or, or demonstrating their their dissatisfaction. But it has really undermined the case that Putin has made that he is trying to essentially neutralize an aggressive state that is in Ukraine, that, that is waging war on, on, you know, supposedly on the, the people of Donbass. This for sure is going to, to create some, some real domestic problems for him. He has a lot of tools in his toolkit that he can still use to, to crack down on dissent, to control the narrative. It, it's hard to, to see this nascent protest movement, you know, turning into something that could be a critical threat to the regime. But it's that that little seed of uncertainty is there. And it, it, it is if this conflict continues for a long time, if we see dead soldiers coming back home, or if we have the scenario in which soldiers go off somewhere, their families might not be told they're going to Ukraine, they might be killed in combat, and they might not, the bodies might not get shipped home. We might have these circumstances where, where people just disappear. And that would be even more destructive to regime stability in Russia. So I think this is a, we're entering a great unknown here. And Putin is looking a bit weaker than he has been really ever before. You know, there's even been unverified internet reports of the Russians moving crematoriums into Ukraine so that they can cremate their casualties and don't have to transport them home in body bags. Have you, is there any validity to that? I've heard those rumors. Unfortunately, I don't think we have any way of really being able to verify them just yet. But it does really raise the question of how does Putin account for the fact that there are going to be losses among regular Russian military forces? When Russia has been involved in conflicts around the world, it's tended to use mercenaries, it's tended to use proxy forces. And so this is one of the first times where we're seeing Russian regulars engaged in fighting and that there will be deaths and that will have a, a significant impact on, on Russian political and, and social stability. Let's just bear in mind the fact that after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the mothers of these, these dead and wounded soldiers became an extremely potent political force. And really, it could be argued, helped to, to kind of hasten the breakdown of the Soviet regime. Andrew, now you lived in Ukraine until very recently. I'm glad you're here and you're not there, considering the circumstances. How are you hearing that the Ukrainians are reacting to this attack and, and what's the mood on the ground? Well, 
certainly Ukrainians are in disbelief. You know, it, it has echoes to uh, 2014 when Ukrainian sovereignty was was first challenged and, and undermined and, and and put under attack by by Russia. Uh, I remember actually in 2014, I was sitting in the office of an anti-corruption organization where I was, uh, was working there over the summer. And uh, then the news came in that MH17 had been shot down. And I'll never forget the look in, in my colleagues' faces when they realized the gravity of what was happening and the degree of violence that Russia was unleashing in Ukraine uh, with, with real global effects. We're seeing plenty of that again now, just this, this feeling that no matter how many times the, the Ukrainian government had been, been warned by U.S. intelligence, Western intelligence, that this might be possible, I think there was still a belief that what Russia really wanted to do was to bluff, to, to intimidate Ukraine into making concessions in, in the East, uh, making concessions on these Minsk agreements, which had been long stalled, and that it, was, it just seemed beyond the pale that Russia would unleash such violence against a brotherly nation. I mean, we saw that Putin had written this very long op-ed last year saying that Russians and Ukrainians were one nation and that the Ukrainian state was an anti-Russian project, but the people were really, truly united. And so now to, to have this violence unleashed upon Ukraine really undermines that whole theory and that whole argument. But let me say that so many folks that I have, have met and I, I stay in touch with are saying that they're, they're ready to defend their homes. I've seen photos from, from friends on social media showing them helping to assemble these Molotov cocktails when they're not hunkering down in, in air raid shelters between, between the sirens. So Russia's in for a long fight and the consequences could be devastating, but, but I think we just have to see how it unfolds. Yeah, we'll be watching this minute by minute here in the United States to be sure. Andrew, is the response from the United States and other countries, you already touched on this at the, at the beginning of this podcast, but is the response sufficient to compel Russia to abandon its invasion? You know, and if not, what more can be done? Well, I think when this first started, the response that we saw from the West was, was actually a bit middling. You know, we saw there were, there were a couple of sanctions that were put into place against uh, major Russian banks. But at first, the Biden administration, other Western partners didn't touch some of the largest banks in Russia, including Sperbank, which has about a third of assets in Russian banks. Since then, there has been a significant ratcheting up of, of financial and economic measures against Russia, and those are going to hurt, especially the sanctions on the, the Russian central bank. It's a known fact that Russia has accumulated a significant amount of foreign currency reserves, essentially a rainy day fund that they can use to, to prop up the economy in case of some sort of exogenous shocks. Now, uh, with the U.S. And, and European sanctions, Russia is not able to use dollars or euros to, to support the ruble. And this is, means that, that we're going to see a really devastating impact on the Russian economy. The question that I have with, uh, with these measures and their effectiveness is, will they really be enough to, to get Putin to step back from this, these goals of regime change and the forced neutralization of Ukraine? I think it's a very interesting tactic now that the Western response is, has moved beyond just putting punitive measures on government officials. But now we're applying the pain to Russian citizens. This is risky territory here. Because for years, since, since Putin really came to office, you know, at the, the end of, of 1999, he's worked to build this vertical of power by which he you know, sits at, at the top of a personalized autocracy that is accountable 
essentially to no one and, and you know, uses the resources of the state to buy off a lease to ensure that his position is safe. But that means he's not accountable to the streets. He's not accountable to the Russian people. And we saw that with the Duma elections last year, widespread fraud. The, the United Russia Party affiliated with Putin really probably only got 33% of the vote, but they were still able to, to just run roughshod over an electoral process and ensure a parliamentary uh, majority. And so what I wonder in all of this is, as we're applying these broad sanctions, it will hurt Russia, but it will also hurt Russians. And so there needs to also be, in the coming days, an effort to give Putin a way that he can, he can exit this dead end that he's, he's you know, gotten himself to. What are the off-ramps, if any, for him at this point? The, that's a tough question. I, I'm not going to lie. That, that is, that's really hard to see because for now, I, I think you know, Russian forces will sustain losses, but he's only committed about half of his, his forces that are surrounding Ukraine. So uh, trying to convince Putin that the, the military option is, is no longer achievable might be difficult as long as he thinks that he has forces that he can use to bring Ukraine to its knees. Um, you know, the economic measures that are being levied against Putin right now and against the, the Russian state are going to take some time to have effect. And so as, as that, that kind of pain ratchets up, I think what we need to have is engagement and making it clear that Russia has to absolutely pull out its forces from Ukraine. It has to make sure that those forces also leave Crimea and the occupied areas of Donbass. And maybe then there will be an opportunity to step back and alleviate some of the sanctions that have been brought to, against Russia. But, you know, this is essentially a position which the United States had already made and the West had already made in these, this exchange of letters when Russia was seeking security guarantees, uh, it's kind of hard to imagine exactly what that negotiated solution really might look like now that Russia has, has crossed over the threshold into naked aggression. I really think there's going, it's going to be walking a very fine line to find a way to get him to, to step down, short of just dealing a, a, an overwhelming price to, to the Russian military and forcing him to step back his own forces on his own. What are the consequences of this invasion for European security writ large? Well, I, I think it's it's safe to say that the this has this crisis and now this this war has absolutely galvanized Europe in ways that were really unimaginable before. The fact is now that that Europeans quite clearly see that their security is in their hands. It requires a significant investment, and, and it requires updating some old assumptions about what may or may not be possible in terms of the, the, the threat to peace and stability on the continent. So now we're entering a new era, probably really a new Cold War, and I don't say that so lightly. The, the challenge here is that Russia's actions fundamentally undermine some of the foundations of European security that had been established really over the, the last 50 to 75 years, starting with the UN Charter and then the, the Helsinki Final Act, which established as a core principle of relations between states, respect for sovereignty, respect for territorial integrity, non-interference in domestic affairs of, of other states, and also the right of, of any state to engage in the alliances and international frameworks of its choosing. The fact is, you know, Russia has said that they... They really had see, see no value in that anymore. They, what they're looking for is a sphere of influence. They're looking for a buffer state in Ukraine. 
And so now I think we've entered an era where some of these, these documents and, and, and principles that we've thought to be sacrosanct are completely under attack. And, and so there has to be a real consideration in terms of how do we engage Russia now as, a, as an actor that refuses to play by the rules. And especially when Vladimir Putin himself is saying the United States with Ukraine has a knife to his throat. It's pretty tough to, you know, walk that back. That's that's a really creative interpretation of the situation, of course. Right. But it goes to show how Putin's thinking has just become so detached from reality that he perceives Ukraine as, as an aggressor state. He's tried to present this as though Ukrainian forces have launched an attack on, on Russian forces and civilian populations right after Russia had just you know uh, uh, finished this months-long buildup of, of heavy equipment along Ukraine's borders. I mean, it's it's not believable at all. But suffice it to say, Russia has a real allergy to the presence of NATO anywhere near its borders, no matter how much the, the West, the United States, and NATO itself has tried to, to say that this is a defensive alliance. It has no qualm against Russia itself if, you know, if it chooses to play by the rules. Russians don't buy that. Putin especially doesn't buy that. But the fact is, he's been in isolation for so long, walled off in, in this compound outside of the capital. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. He's been in isolation in his DACA outside the capital, basically for the entirety of COVID. How has that factored into all of this? Yeah, there's certainly a lot of armchair psychologists who are looking at, at Putin now and thinking that the man is off his, off his rocker and it might be suffering from some sort of psychological or, or other illness. I mean, obviously, we can't really say whether that's true or not, but being in isolation, being dependent uh, on flows of information that are provided to you or, or coordinated by, by people who are frightened to share the truth because they want to save their own skin, I think that goes to show that Putin has really just been in an echo chamber for a long period of time. And, and so that's what, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we see this gross miscalculation about trying to launch an invasion of Ukraine and also the justifications for doing so. They're just incredibly far-fetched, but are kind of bringing in themes from media outlets that, that have been really developed over time in, into these hyperbolic, really uh, vitriolic channels to present Russia as though it's a fortress under siege. And I think he's really starting to reflect that same, that same thinking, which we thought no, or at least I thought for a long time, was, was just really rather performative to keep audiences in Russia and, 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 and citizens in Russia cowed, to keep them from, from starting to question what the, the government is doing for them. And instead, it's a lot easier just to, to try to present yourself as on the defensive from these aggressive Western forces. Andrew Lawson, fascinating discussion. Thank you for helping us get to the beginning of the truth of the matter about this issue. I know we're going to turn back to you certainly before it's over. Thanks again. Thanks, Andrew. Happy to be here. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 